Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And as a little post-Christmas treat, we have three very special The Style Council-themed podcasts this week, each with a different honorary councillor. You've already heard from Kamel Hines and Chris Bostock. Well, next up is the turn of Barbara Snow, trumpet player with the Style Council in those very early days of the band, and a widely respected and popular vocalist, trumpeter, pianist, composer, and arranger. Barbara studied at the Royal Academy of Music and has toured the world with loads of bands. Plus, for the past 28 years, she's also built up a teaching reputation with both piano and trumpet, even devising a way to teach piano to very young children, which we're going to hear about on the podcast as well so let's get into it barbara snow thanks for joining me my pleasure how are you dan i'm very well i'm very well i'm i'm loving the fact that over time more and more of our honorary councillors are joining us on the podcast it's a massive list that we're ticking off but we're getting there on a few you know quite a few honorary councillors there are a lot of you yes and and some of you i'm not saying this is you but some of you memories are a little hazy <laughs> so so we'll see how we go because the thing about this thing is the star council was what 38 years ago it kicked off uh, 1983 i can't even remember what i did last week so let alone that that long ago but we'll see if we can pull out some of these memories from you if that's all right i don't know where to start because there's so many strings to your bow actually the one thing there might not be is strings to your bow because trumpet player, singer, piano player, arranger, composer. I mean, this love of music presumably started at a fairly young age to to fit all that in. Yeah, well, my mum, I discovered much later when I was growing up that she actually did play the piano when I was a kid. But I was aware of my dad. He played jazz tunes on the piano. He played everything by ear. I was aware of Cole Porter and Gershwin. He played everything in E flat because that was a nice easy key for him, you know, on the black keys. But my granddad 
on my mum's side was very good at the piano as well. And he played organ in the church when he was young. So from both sides, I had music coming at me. I've heard Paul Weller talking about his dad, John Weller, playing all the black keys. Is that easier? Though? I guess it's easier to find your place, isn't it? So, yeah, oh, yeah, I suppose know. so. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, Because if it was all white keys, you wouldn't have a clue what you're doing, would you? So. Now, as this is the Paul Weller fan podcast, we're going to dig into your memories of working with Paul and the Style Council and, and other links throughout the years as well. Can you remember when you first discovered the music of Paul Weller? Are you aware of when he first became a person in your head? Well, I studied classically and I live in a kind of bubble, you know, the things that I'm doing. So I was just aware of the things that I was involved in, really. So I was listening to classical music when, in my teens and and pop music as well. I loved Tamla Motan, but I wasn't really aware of Paul Weller at all. And it was only when they rang me... <laughs> <laughs> it's a slightly embarrassing memory. Um, would you like to play Paul? And I didn't know. I didn't know who he was. So I was totally unaware of of the name. Particularly, I'm not very good at names anyway. And I'd kind of ignore names as well. I, yeah, I did like pop music, and so really, when I started playing in the band, that's and I I really enjoyed the music. Actually, I, I I did enjoy it. So how did they find you? Where did you? Were you on a list of jobbing musicians? Your guess is as good as mine. I don't I don't know how they found me because I think I don't know. I mean, I was I played with Jules Holland, but I think that was later, and I don't know how they found me either. So I did a lot of things that I don't know how people found me. <laughs> yeah, they obviously wanted females because we just both happened to be female in the horn section. So there was an agency called Session Connection. I was with them, and we did uh, communards with that horn section as well. At the time, I was more involved with this four-piece horn section. Well, there were three or four pieces. It was called the Kick Horns. They played with loads of people like The Who, and I was playing with them a lot, and they used to come and play in the band that I was also heavily involved with, which was called Outbar Squeak, later to be called Outbar. And this was a really big thing for me, Outbar, in the early 80s. And so I was mostly working with the Kick Horns, but I just worked with Hillary when when we did the Style Council. So, so the phone call comes. Um, did you have to audition? Can you remember? Oh, my gosh. Don't think so. How was it sold into you in terms of what it was? Just it's Paul Weller and he's, you don't know who he is, but he's some pop star and there's going to be a band and want you to be involved. Yeah, well, I think they rang me because they were doing the tour, but I did actually play on some sessions and I guess that we did the sessions before the tour. And I remember working with Billy Chapman, uh, sax player Billy Chapman on the session. Uh, we did uh, Dropping Bombs on the White House. And, oh yeah. dear, someone's doing some building works. DIY starting next door. Can you remember your first performance? live with the Style Council when that would have been was that UK or did you go straight overseas I think we went straight to Europe and it was it was Paris it was Cologne Zurich Amsterdam I think it was five gigs over 10 days there's some really cool posters from that time where it was like it's the world premiere of Style Council live and like the Style Council would go on first and then you'd have Tracy and then later on the Style Council after a few other bits Style Council would come back on for the second and final part it was different in terms of like if you think about pop music it was different in terms of what they were doing wasn't it yeah it was it was interesting having a whole set of different bands on I do remember being um, for some reason having to do an announcement when we were in I think it was Amsterdam because I'm really into languages and I worked at how you say this number is called, but I can't remember which tune it was, and I had to say that in Dutch. Uh, <laughs> I do remember that bit. It's number eight, whatever it was. Yeah, so this is October 1983. You're at Zurich, Paris, Brussels, Hamburg, and the Zurich gig was particularly special when I was talking to Hillary because you all wore ski gear. Yes. I could have sworn it was Cologne. I remember Cologne. I remember. Maybe I'm with another with another tour then. Yeah, we wore ski gear. It was great. I, I got this really nice ski jumper and white uh, tracksuit bottoms. and Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> but a little bit hot for stage wear. It's not something you'd normally choose, is it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And uh, did you go skiing as a band? Uh, didn't go skiing. I can't ski. I've been once, actually. It's, it was one of my ambitions was to go skiing and I managed it a, 
a couple of years ago. I love the idea of the honorary councillors. Mick Talbot's talked about this and the idea of um, these kind of players being brought in for the right songs, the right people for the right songs. And when you look at the set list for these gigs, it's like songs like It Just Came to Pieces in My Hand, Money Go Round, Dropping Bombs on the White House, uh, Mick Talbot on Keys, Mix Up, which is always a pleasure, Party Chambers, Paris Match, all those kind of things as well. Do any of those songs, songs stand out as being highlights in terms of you know what you had to play? Well, I enjoyed playing My Ever-Changing Moods best I think and I remember really liking You're the Best Thing That Ever Happened Paris Match I liked and Long Hot Summer Did it feel like you were doing something that felt European? Oh yeah definitely with the the French tunes and, and I suppose the, the look of the band as well Did you have to think about how you looked? Was there like a style conversation between you and Hillary or between the, you, you as a band? I think there was a, a style person somebody in control oh. I seem to remember we had to put gel in our hair and, and oh there was I remember this lady called Helen who played keyboards and she was very good at um, making her hair stick up so she showed us how to do it. <laughs> I think she played with them as well. Helen Turner, yeah? Helen Turner, yeah. Yeah, she was very good at uh, helping with all the whatever. But I, I'm sure they had somebody to coordinate it all. Considering it was the 80s, you all got pr- off pretty lightly in terms of styles in the sense that you look back now and you all look pretty cool. It's not like there are awful hairdos and, you know, there's not like frizzy perms and massive shoulder pads and stuff. It looked pretty yeah, cool. Nothing to be too embarrassed about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a couple of TV appearances. Um, so somebody started uploading to YouTube the TV series The Tube, which was, we mentioned Jules Holland, which was Jules Holland and Lessa Pauli Yates, um, who's sadly no longer with us. But you guys played on The Tube. And there's, I don't know if you've seen the clip, there's some pretty cool dance moves as well on that from the two of you, from you and <laughs> Hillary. Oh, yeah, we had, a, we had our choreography all worked out. I think I, I think I might have been a bit bossy in, that, in terms of that. But we, yeah, we, do, we always did the same thing, moving from side to side and up and down or something. <laughs> It always looks pretty cool when you've got instrument in hand as well. That helps, doesn't it, with the trombone or the trumpet in hand to be able to move around. Yeah, and I think the tube was live, wasn't it? We had to actually play live, I do believe. But there's one Saturday Superstore as well you're on, which I think was, was that like Mike Reed and Sarah Green, maybe? I'm trying to remember. And you had to mime on that. Did that always feel a bit weird, miming? Well, you've just got to play anyway. You just have to play because otherwise you look like you're miming. Oh, so you're still playing the trumpet and noises coming out of it? Well, that's the best way to... To mine is to actually play. It's weird, isn't it? Because one of the things I thought watching the tube was just the lack of live music on television these days. Apart from Jaws Holland, mm-hmm. there aren't those big live music TV shows, are there? I think TFI Friday maybe was the last one. It seems really weird. Yeah, I played on TFI Friday with uh, Manic Street Preachers. Actually. Did you? Yeah, that was live. Yeah. You know, the drummer doubles on. He can play trumpet, so mm. obviously he couldn't do the two at the same time. And it was this uh, Kevin Carter track oh, yeah. which had a trumpet solo in it. So you have to stand there for ages and ages, and then you play this, this trumpet solo. And and, and then wait till the end of the song again. <laughs> yeah, we did TFI Friday. We did uh, 9X, is it, in Manchester as well? Yeah, I used to love TFI. That was such a great show. <laughs> I was a big Chris Evans fan back in the day as well, because we yeah, both had ginger right. hair and glasses. <laughs> and, he had, and he worked in radio, which was really cool. I did um, lots of Blow Monkey stuff as well. I went on to do Blow Monkeys after Star Council. I think they were good friends. I think that might be why. Now, I have to talk to you about this album as well. So here we are, Cafe Blur. I'm not sure if it's one in your collection, but you're obviously on it. There was a song called A Gospel, which was Dizzy Heights doing a rap. Do you remember anything about that at all? We, did you play with him or was it all recorded separately? I don't actually, I vaguely may, might remember doing that. Uh, what do you remember about that album then? Do you remember anything about that album? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember much about it at all. I do remember doing Dropping Bombs on the White House. That's the one I remember recording. And I, and I guess Ever Changing Moods, I remember. So the one on the album is just Paul singing Mick on piano. Um, but then they 
kept redoing, you know, doing different versions of Style Guns. And it was about adding value to the fans when Mick talked to me. And My Ever Changing Moods comes out as a single. And it was the first credits, I think I'm right in saying, for you and Hillary on, a, on one of the singles. I did um, most of the stuff. I think it, all of it was at Solid Bond. That's what, I, that's what I remember. I mean, I do remember going to Amsterdam to do some TV thing, I think, TV show, but otherwise recording at Solid Bond, yeah. On the back of Café Blur, you know, Steve White was such a young lad, 17, 18, when they plucked him for the live tour as well. It says, the producers of this record wish to thank this drum warrior of only 18 summers for his work and helping making this LP um, and the fact he plays drums and percussion. What do you remember about Steve? Oh, Steve, a really, really lovely guy. Really nice. Very, um, just very normal, very friendly, open, very intelligent, very good musician, a good person. And then Mick is, what does it say here? Effervescent Mick Talbot, a cat who blissfully can't decipher between where and why, but certainly knows how to. He brilliantly applies his skill to his keyboard as much as he does to bus rides. I don't know what that means. Yeah, Mickey T. Uh, I didn't really talk to him very much, I don't think. I don't really remember any long conversations or anything like that. There was, I guess there was sort of groups within the band, you know, and I would probably spend most of my time with either Hillary or Steve. The, the person I spent, I did do remember a lot is Joe Awomi, who was the uh, bodyguard for Bruce Foxton. Oh, right. And um, I remember sitting in a bar with him somewhere. I think that was in, I thought it was in Sweden or something. I don't know. If just imagine that in my memory. But um, very, very lovely person. And uh, oh, and the, and the coach driver, Paul. And I can't remember his surname. Really, really nice. And I'd love to get be back in touch with him. Unfortunately, Joe died. I'd love to be back in touch with Paul. Um, I guess it's a bit cliquey. So I don't really, I don't remember having any conversation with Mick particularly. I remember there's a lot of vegetarians in the band. And I remember when we used to go into a service station, you know, there was an awful lot of chips and beans and <laughs> eggs had, had to be have, had because um, because of vegetarian requirements or just, just chips and beans. I don't know. <laughs> Life on the road sounds so glamorous, Barbara. <laughs> they just don't really cater for those things, do they, in those days? No, it wasn't cool. no, not at all, was it? Yeah. And Paul had gone veggie at that point as well, isn't it? Hadn't That's he? Right. I remember him always having to have these really dodgy looking meals that just didn't look like something that you want to have. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a big meat eater. I think you've got to get all your vitamins especially when you're on tour i was reading an article the other day it was um, in smash hits and it was from around that time and he talked about having knocked booze on the head and, and stopped drinking but then obviously that didn't last very long because the drinking became a big culture and a big part of the band but then again knocked it on the head about 10 11 years ago something like that i think one of the things that came up a lot with the style council people and the honorary councillors is how it felt a bit like a youth club because you're all so young does is that your memory of life on the road with them as well uh yeah i guess because the bass player was very young as well wasn't he anthony so i suppose yeah it was a little bit like a youth club i, guess. I remember steve sedalnik he was very sociable there's one other thing I had to ask you about, which was Respond Records, um, which was Paul Weller's record label. His version of like Tamla Motown, I think is how it's been talked about. And there's a band on there called The Questions and a chap called Paul Barry, who uh, we'll talk a bit more about in a second. But do you remember playing on The Questions LP? Yeah, I played on The Questions album um, with my ex, Sid Gold. He played trumpet as well on it. And Joe was in charge of it because I knew Joe so well. He he said, oh, can you and Sid come and play on this track? I can't remember how many tracks we played on. But yeah, we definitely played on The Questions. It's really interesting watching footage of those guys because when you're watching it's like oh, this Paul Barry guy and then you look in and Paul Barry's like written for Cher and Lionel Richie and Tina Turner and James Morrison and wrote Let It Go by James Bay he's like become like a huge big hit songwriter isn't he so he's, yeah. was he the main was he the singer in the yeah he was the main band? guy yeah which is yeah, which is like nuts. So I need to get him on the podcast as well. Now let's talk post style council. Um, you mentioned recording and touring with the Blow Monkeys. Talk to me about Doctor Robert. What's he like as a front man? How does he compare with Mister Weller? It's just totally different, isn't it? When we were doing house 
was all house beats and um, I did lots of arranging well a bit of arranging for them actually and um, I remember going to La Manga and we went on a, we went to a fair, fairground. We went in bumper cars. I took a picture of Dr. Robert in a bumper car. Yeah, we went swimming in the sea in La Manga and went, I went on those, what are those things called? Jet skis. I went on one of those. We went to some quite exciting places. We went to Japan as well. So I saw quite a lot more of, uh, of the world because usually bands just took me to Europe. You know, I kept going to Europe all the time, but with the Blowman because we actually went a bit further afield, which was good. I mean, Star Council did ask me if I wanted to go to America with them, but because I was so wrapped up with this outbar band, I didn't go. I thought, oh no, I'll get I'll get to America another time. And um, well, I have been actually, not particularly with a band. But I think. The Star Council were huge in Japan as well. Blow Monkeys are a big thing out there too, were they? Yeah, yeah, they were big in Japan. Yeah, and um, I always remember we all we were sitting in this uh, pub, I guess, after a gig, and the, and one of these. Japanese promoters or somebody that was, was talking to us, he said to him, oh yeah, we had a uh, Lick Ashtray here recently or something. <laughs> and I realised it's Rick Ashley. So that's quite fun. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Jules Holland earlier. So um, when was it that you worked with Jules? This is obviously part of his post-Style Council, post-Blow Monkeys, I would guess. But was it part of his big band orchestra? Yeah, in that great big band. I did... Um, a couple of live gigs in Greenwich Park and in Jersey. I think we went to either Jersey or Guernsey, one of those places. But mostly it was the Hoot Nanny every year. We'd all traipse along to the studios. Because I had my first kid in 1995, I remember doing the Hoot Nanny and it was about the second or third time I'd done it. Or I think I must have started before 95. I've done it a couple of years. And I rang the babysitter just to check on my son. And apparently he was projectile vomiting, which he said, oh, yes, he's fine. Yeah, he's fine. And I, so I carried on, did the TV show and everything. And then <laughs> when I went to pick him up, discovered he'd actually been really ill. But she just, she knew I had a TV thing to do. And so protected me from the truth, which is, I thought was rather decent of her. That is nice. Bless her. And the funny thing about Hootenanny, obviously we watch it every New Year's Eve. It sets you right up, doesn't it? But obviously it's not live. So it's like recorded, yes, what, the beginning of December, end of November or something. So you're having... Second of November, I think. So you're having to pretend that it's New Year, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's really difficult, really difficult to pretend, yeah. And the, and the camera angles, they swing around, don't they? In, so if you're trying to watch it and see yourself, you go, whoa, oh, there I am. And then, <laughs> then you're gone. So you can't really, you can't say to people, oh, yeah, look at me on the Jules Holland, because you can't see it unless you've got a magnifying glass and somewhere sort of stopping it, you know. It's difficult to put on the show reel, right? Yeah. yeah, I did it about five years running, I think. Who did you play with on Hootenanny? I mean, Paul Weller was one of the artists, wasn't he? He was, and we had a bit of a chat, actually, when he did it. He's probably did it, done it more than once, hasn't he? I remember yeah. having a chat with him. And um, I think Carmel, yeah, I remember chatting to her. She might have done one of the ones in Greenwich. So Because I worked with Carmel. I did lots of tours with Carmel. So she did it. Uh, obviously, Ruby Turner has done it loads of times. I think uh, Eric Clapton did it, and B.B. King. A lot of the times, I hadn't really, I wasn't really aware of some of these people that were on it but yeah those people I think Blur well we didn't obviously we didn't play with them they were a band but they were on the show as well oh Sandy Shaw I think might have done it oh wow cool there's reams and reams of these people what is it about the music industry what is it about making music that still excites you and makes you want to be and, and has excited you over your career and made you want to be part of this whole thing well there's an amazing feeling when you're playing in a band uh, you know live band and I love playing in a horn section I love playing in big bands when you've got this really powerful sound from the horn section and I mean I've just always I've had to do music because it's kind of right in me you know it's the only thing that really speaks to me I couldn't have done anything else apart from maybe languages I don't know maybe I could have done that there's no way I could have become a doctor or something just had to do music yeah like playing in a live gig is is amazing but it's actually it can be quite nerve-wracking having your own band because I did try having my own band and I found all the preparatory stuff is just too much it's very very stressful so I've 
uh, hats off to these people who have their own bands and, and organise it all and, you know, ringing people and telling them that the gig isn't, ha- isn't happening or cancelling someone. It's just all, I find it very stressful because I hate um, upsetting people, you know. So if I talk to someone and say, well, actually, you're not on the gig anymore, someone else is doing it or something, it's just too, very stressful having your own thing. It's kind of, it's very satisfying as well because you're you're playing your own music. I've done loads of my own compositions and, and performed them. But uh, playing sessions is, is very exciting. It's, I think it's an adrenaline rush, isn't it? Because you're trying to, you're aiming for p- perfection and you play something and then they say, well, can you just make that note a bit shorter or just play a bit longer? And, and you've got to quickly compute that and and then produce it absolutely right. And it's a real challenge and I love it. I love being in the studio, but I can see the people who are in the studio the whole time, they've got these pasty faces, you know, because they don't get any sunshine, do they? And um, they look like they've been living underground. So I'm, I'm glad I'm not just a studio musician, really. And I love, one of the things I love as well is that you don't pick a genre, do you? For you, it's music that you love, whether it's, you yeah. know, Afrobeat, reggae, jazz, you mentioned classical, you mentioned that whatever the style council was, because I think it was a whole range of you know, genres as well. There's not one yeah. thing you, you stick with, is there? No, no. And, and I can lock into whatever the, the groove is of I've done so much reggae and I know you know you can sit on the back of the beat I've done loads of salsa you sit on the front of the beat different ways of doing all and lots of jazz I've done a lot of jazz as well and that's kind of on the back I guess um I, yeah, I love the variety. And- I mean, the, the list of people you've played with, like Maxi Priest, the Waterboys, Fairground Attraction was one that, I love that band, like Eddie Reader, that band was so good. Um, so tell me about that. How did that come about? Well, Eddie was in this band out by, you see. The Kickhorns played with it, Eddie played with it, and Gina Foster also, who's a fantastic singer. The, the, the two of them were amazing singers, so inspirational. I remember going around to Eddie's place once she lived in sort of like a prefab or something well it's near london bridge around that sort of area and she, yeah. and she had this little place and and i remember she didn't really want to learn music theory because she thought that would take all the uh, that would somehow take some magic away from the way she performs i remember because i really wanted to help her to learn theory and stuff like that in a way she might have a point i've decided <laughs> but on the other hand you need to kind of know you do need to know what you're doing. And certainly if you're going to start doing any composition or any arranging, I think you need to know mm. some sort of theoretical stuff. Yeah, Eddie's amazing. And when I when we recorded um, You Send Me, I remember that one, being in Angel Studios. I remember him being in Angel Studios, massive great room, uh, room for a, a whole orchestra in there. And we'd go through the track. And if anybody wasn't happy with their part or if there's a mistake, you go through the whole track again. There was no dropping in. It's just always did the whole track again and again. So on about the sixth take, she said, okay, yeah, I think that's uh, that's a wrap, you know. So that was quite a thing. I, I, I've not done many recordings where the people just want to go live through the track every single time with every musician. I'm trying to remember what the debut album was. It The Million Kisses? That have been the album? Oh, first of, first of A Million Kisses. Yeah, that first album was, to, I'm going to put that on straight after this, I'm going to put that on because that was a fabulous, mm-hmm. that's reminded me. But, um, and then another one that you've played with, um, I mean, we should talk about the James Taylor quartet, but Dave Gilmore was one that stood out as well. Yeah, we did. Again, I, I didn't really know who he was, you know, usual <laughs> story. But yeah, we turned up, played for David Gilmore and I've got two copies of the record actually. So I've got this whole collection of records that I've played on. <laughs> Uh, I don't remember much about the session. I mean, I remember being there with they, the Kickhorns are like my brothers. You know, they were they're really nice people. We used to do the arrangements as well. We do an arrangement and we go along and we play it. And the, the other guys would they were really involved in the whole production of the you know the, which side of the speakers the, this sound would come out of, or you know whether Barry would come out of that speaker. They were really involved in the whole way that the horn section would sound. It was quite a 
than education. Now talk to me about the James Taylor Quartet as well. I think I did two or three tracks. I know it was in town. It was sort of somewhere near Charing Cross Road, I think. You know, near that, what's that little road with all the guitar shops and it was kind of there. Oh, I know, <laughs> I know the one you mean. Yeah, I walk past enviously realising I can't afford any of them, yeah. Or, or play any of them. We've got no talent in that space whatsoever, but they, they just, that shop looks cool. <laughs> yeah, I think it was downstairs we did downstairs in there we did the recording there's a shop like that on Soho as well which has like Yamaha pianos and keyboards and something like that and I always walk past that thinking it'd be lovely to be able to play I mean that must be such a special feeling to be able to just be able to sit at one of those massive pianos and know what the heck you're doing yeah so don't you play any instrument at all no I mean I've never tried it's not like you know I'm sure I can be taught and we should talk because that's one of the big things you've done as well as all the music stuff and playing with huge big stars and that but you've also been teaching piano am I right in thinking just down the road from me I think in Croydon oh where do you live I'm in Carl Shorten. Oh, right. Okay. I teach at a school in South Croydon, Royal Russell School. I think I started in about 93. So it's long. Just piano and trumpet. I mean, I have taught little bits of violin here and there because I used to play violin when I was quite young. And I've taught theory and little bits of singing here and there as well. Mostly it's piano. And I've written a piano book called Animal Jazz, which is the beginner piano. And they're using it for the associated board for the syllabus. It's an alternative um, C piece. One of the pieces from my book called Jazzy Dragon is one of the alternative C pieces for the ABRSM. So I'm really, really pleased that they've picked that, you know, and apparently they're going to use another one next year, but we don't know. That's all secret, which one they're going to use. I think when I was a kid learning the piano and doing these grades, you know, the idea that I would ever have written a piece that's going to appear on that page, I would never have dreamed. Mind you, I wouldn't have dreamed I went, I would go to the Royal Academy either. So, How do you approach writing a piano piece that has to be learnt? Is it different to writing a song? Yeah, when you, when, Kids start, you know, they, they tend to start in just one hand position. So they maybe what I call first positions when both your thumbs are on middle seat. So I wrote quite a few pieces that are in that, maybe start in that position at least. And then they perhaps move to one other position. So just trying to keep it really easy. So the, the challenge is to write something that sounds nice, but it's just in, in this really easy hand position so that kids will yeah. be able to get their hang off straight away. I, I wanted to write things that wouldn't take six months for them to learn, you know, because I, I think we all lose the will to live, don't we, when they're taking forever to learn a piece. So I got this whole set of pieces that were really easy to learn. And then I suddenly realised that none of them would be any good for the Associated Board because they were too easy, really. So I added a separate section to mo a lot of them that was make it so that your hand moves and it's just that tiny bit more challenging. And then they took up one of these pieces. So I was, and what do you like about giving back? What is it about teaching people to learn the instruments that you find satisfying? It's just really rewarding when you see kids go from just not having a clue to being able to play pieces. It's fantastic. Um, I wrote down a note that said Laurel and Hardy and okay. I have no idea why because <laughs> well, that's all a, I put. I just put Laurel and Hardy but I can't remember why. Well, there was a Laurel and Hardy band, a band called Laurel and Hardy rather and they did a track called Dangerous Shoes and we all traipsed off to number 73. That was a program that I played on lots and lots of times and one time was with Laurel and Hardy and we all went down in a van full of the smell of cannabis or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> went down and did this show but Dangerous Shoes it was a good track it, was, it did really well that was years and years ago I've just met the bass player the other week in a gig I haven't seen him for you know all those years since he said it was 30 something years I think. oh funny no, brilliant yeah, number yeah. 73 my god I haven't thought about that since it was Sandy Toxvig and Neil Buchanan Sandy wasn't it Toxvig. Sandy Toxvig because Outbar played on number 73 as I said uh, Lauren Hardy and various other people played on I think maybe Maxi Maxi Priest might have done it as well I'm not sure lots of different bands Ended yeah. up going to this number seventy. It was a good one, and I also remember playing on a program called Hold Tight at Alton Towers. I think I did that with the Communards. We did, yeah, I did it with the Communards, and I also did it with Outbar. It's a really good program to be on because you get this card that means you can go to the front of the queue in all the attractions. <laughs> you know, so right there at the front of the queue, went on the thing that goes round and round and up and down and whatever. 
roller coaster. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> the ideal gig. Was that pre or post gig? <laughs> not sure. Not sure what's the better way to do the roller coaster. Oh, I think <laughs> it was afterwards. So, <laughs> oh, dear. Hey, look, I've now got the theme tune for number 73 buzzing around my head as well. You've taken me off. You've, you've taken me back to my childhood, a beautiful thing. <laughs> um, I have two final questions for you, Barbara, before you go. So one is you're allowed one Paul Weller track for the rest of your life. It can be the jam with a style council or solo. What's it going to be? One track. Um, well, it's a toss up between two I suppose ever changing moods I, I like it I like that track final question purpose of this podcast is not least to meet lovely people like yourself but it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career if it happens what should I talk to him about is there anything you'd like to know from the great man well I think I think he showed incredible bravery changing from the jam to Star Council because I remember in Zurich people being really hostile in the audience because they were all jam fans and um, that sticks in my memory. So to just totally change your style and then have that kind of backlash going on is, is a bit like Miles Davis. I mean, different, trying different uh, avenues, different styles, and um, which you've got to say is very admirable. This has been so lovely, Barbara. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the teaching and the lesson this afternoon. Hopefully they're, they're getting it. Are they getting the hang of it? They are, definitely. Loads <laughs> of talented kids. Uh, that's our next generation of musicians, isn't it? Yeah, well, I look forward to uh, doing a podcast in 20 years about one of them, hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Barbara, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. See you later. My thanks once again to Barbara snow for wrapping up this latest round of honorary counselors what a magical experience to spend time in their company and if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please do share on your social media channels you can also buy me a coffee and find more information about all my guests including barbara on the website paulwellerfanpodcast.com get in touch on social media on twitter at wellerfanpod and on instagram and facebook Paul Weller fan podcast. Next up, we enter the new year with the man who signed the jam. Chris Parry is my next guest, 4th of January. Make sure you follow wherever you get your podcasts. It's a really very special episode. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.